Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayome Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayome Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, February 11th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on mass demonstrations in the Kingdom of Morocco demanding that the government cancels its peace agreement with the State of Israel. Egypt says uh, its 45-year-old accord uh, with Tel Aviv is in jeopardy amid threats uh, by the settler colonial regime to launch an offensive in Rafa in the southern Gaza Strip. And Ethiopia is working uh, on its integration into the BRICS summit. In the second hour, we listened to a report uh, from PAM Africa on the medical situation involving political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal. Later, we look at the political damage to the administration of President Joe Biden due to the United States role in Palestine, North Africa, and West Asia. Senegal uh, has postponed its national elections. We'll have details on that as well. Also, uh, we continue our African American History Month series with an interview with CLR James on the Haitian Revolution. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the Bozi Boziana and the Anti-Shock Orchestra from the late 1980s. Uh, let's listen in.
Welcome back. And that was uh, the music of Bozi Boziana and the anti-shock band uh, from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, February 11th, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. Thousands of Moroccans have staged a rally in the capital of Rabat to protest their country's ties with the state of Israel and to urge their government uh, to cut relations with Tel Aviv over the regime's ongoing genocidal war on the besieged Gaza Strip. More than 10,000 protesters gathered in front of the parliament building in the center of the capital city uh, earlier today as they carried banners reading, Normalization is Treason, and stop. In other news, in neighboring Egypt, uh, Egyptian officials and a Western diplomat have stated that uh, in case Israel makes the move, Egypt would be forced to block the Rafah crossing, currently the only humanitarian corridor that is supplying Gaza with aid. Egypt has threatened to dissolve uh, its normalization agreement with Israel uh, if the occupation deploys condensed forces along its border with the Gaza city of Rafah. Two Egyptian officials and a Western diplomat stated on Sunday uh, that in case Israel makes the move, Egypt would be forced to block the Rafah crossing, currently the only humanitarian corridor that is supplying uh, relief uh, to the besieged uh, 2.3 million people in the Gaza Strip. This comes a day after Cairo sent warnings to Israel regarding their diplomatic relations that these may cease in case the Israeli forces launched a full-scale invasion of the city of Rafah according uh, to uh, the Wall Street Journal. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. This is the Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. In other news, the U.S. president can hardly make a public appearance without being protested uh, for his role in Israel's genocide on Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, which entered its fifth month uh, just this last past Wednesday. Biden still refuses to implement a ceasefire, even as more than 4% of Gaza's population has been killed, injured, or missing, and presumed dead. The Biden administration has given Israel carte blanche to carry out its genocide in Gaza with total impunity, near-constant delivery of weaponry, and even bypassing Congress to greenlight weapon sales to Israel. But administration officials discuss the possibility of a ceasefire as if it's a distant aspiration they're struggling to achieve. In reality, the Biden administration holds the power to cease the supply of military aid to Israel at any moment. With November's U.S. presidential elections on the horizon, Biden's action in Gaza are coming under greater scrutiny. Protests are also extending to other members of the Biden administration and the Democratic lawmakers more broadly. Activists are heckling politicians on Capitol Hill, interrupting campaign rallies, and staging walkouts and engaging in other forms of dissent. And uh, finally, the Ethiopian government, uh, its senior officials have met to discuss the country's integration into the BRICS grouping and to ensure mutual benefits within the BRICS mechanism. Now, this came as Ethiopia's BRICS senior official committee, uh, which uh, brings together senior government officials from various federal institutions held its second session uh, on Thursday. Uh, the Ethiopian Ministry of Foreign Affairs said in a statement issued on Friday, 
the committee discussed, among other things, how to best to serve the East African country's national interests within the BRICS framework. According to the statement, in its membership, Ethiopia will actively participate in BRICS with a primary focus on fostering partnerships and collaboration for development, people-to-people relations, and strengthening the multilateral system. With that, we're going to conclude the, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners, the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussion on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded uh, in January of 1998. Uh, since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches and hundreds of newspapers, magazines, uh, journals, research reports, blogs, and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to uh, have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, February 11th, uh, 2024, go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Maggot Brain album. And right now we want to move into a segment uh, on political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal, who has been incarcerated since December of 1981, uh, some 42 years, uh, for a crime in which he did not commit uh, in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, Let's listen to a report on his health status uh, from uh, Pam Africa just this last past week. My name is Noelle Hanrahan. I'm a lawyer and a private investigator, and I work with Prison Radio, and I'm here with Pam Africa for the International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Pam, what's the latest? Right. Um, last week, I had a phone call that came in from Wadia Jamal's oldest son, and he had just left from visiting Mumia, and he was really upset. In fact, he said he left there crying going down the hall. When he got to his car, he said he was so messed up when he turned his car on, he had to stop because he was crying uncontrollably. And uh, because Mumia looked just that bad. And uh, his hair had came out, but the most important thing, it wasn't the fact that Mumia's hair was gone, and uh, it was the rash. And uh, he had this black rash that started on his face. And uh, he had seen where Mumia had scratched so much that his eyebrows, you know, um, half of them was gone. And that Mumia itched continuously, 24-7. He had a terrible itch there. And it was very alarming for me. So I contacted, you know, several of the people that work, that work around Mumia and um, made arrangements to go up to the prison in our last, Monday, I mean, this Monday just passed, and I was shocked when I saw Mumia. You know, he was thin, he was much, he had lost a lot of weight, and when he talked about the rash, it brought back to my mind when we were fighting, and all this government, and all to stop them from murdering Mumia through medical neglect. 
as I sat here, you know, watching Momia, and I'm thinking about when you hear Momia on his podcast with Mark Lamont Hill, you would have no idea you could not place the face, you know, the face of Momia, the body of Momia with what you're hearing on the radio because you're thinking that you know he's well. This government is slowly, purposely killing Mumia through medical neglect. I'm talking about his diet, which Noel will you know talk more about, and on the fact that he does not get proper yard out. He has a bad heart, and they're not giving him the proper diet the proper things that he needs to survive. And most of all, I want people to understand, this should happen to no one. But Mumia is 100% innocent. And uh, you will see, you know, uh, you know, through the years, you know, all the illegal things they have done to keep him in jail. And uh, but at this particular time, I know what I am seeing. And uh, um, uh, my dear son, Issa, he knew what it is he's seeing. You know, they are torturing. When you itch 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and as we're speaking, William is being tortured right now. There's not a part of his body that doesn't itch, you know, that he's not digging and clawing at. You know, um, you know, we need help. We need help. We need help getting him a diet, you know, um, which, you know, while we're working and we got to pick up the work, we really got to pick up the work because when you have the evidence of innocence, we must put the pressure on this government to release this proven innocent man. Um, Judge um, Griffin in you know, from Arkansas said that these people have a bloodlust, and that's what they have, a bloodlust. They have a vengeance. And uh, Mumia is, you know, a, a Black Panther. And, uh, you know, he's been supportive of the MOVE organization, you know, for years. And uh, Mumia is an icon in the world community for the work that he has done for mankind, for humanity. And these people want to kill him. And they're doing it. They're slowly doing it, you know. Mumia had a operation where um, the guard described who was, you know, uh, went to with Mumia to get this operation on his heart. And uh, as seeing Mumia's heart beating on the table, Mumia, you know, on a, um, you know, on a gurney or, or you know, um, or, you know, wherever the medical take the medical table. And uh, you know, and that frightened him. He was, you know, it almost made him sick to be in the room, you know, to see this. And uh, there are pictures of Mumia from 2023 last year, and all uh, that will go up on the on the well site and other sites, and all uh, to show people the decline in health of Mumia. And uh, so we're asking people to rise up, rise up, and do the right. Thing. And uh, go to your, you know, um, congressman, you know, call to prison and, uh, you know, do whatever is necessary. This is just the beginning of this particular battle. We'll have more details on what it is that everybody can do. Um, I'm going to let Noel talk now and uh, share the time with Noel. 
But please, please, I'm telling you what I see. And he it, he should never reach the point where he reached last year, I mean, a couple of years ago. You know, his body can't take much more. And I got to say this before nobody in the world. Maureen Faulkner, the day the movie was released from death row, the, and the day that movie was granted an appeal by Judge Tucker, you know, he said very clearly about the work that they was going to do. Once he went to general population, you know, she said he'll get his just due. And, uh, you know, that he's going to burn in hell. Uh, you know, we're still talking about an innocent person. Um, you know, and that's when Mumia started getting sick. Mumia had been in jail for over 30 years at that point. And, yes, he had colds and things like that. But once he hit general population, when they found out that um, he would think that you know, it was just the general population, you know, that's when his sickness started. And then when he went, uh, when Judge Tucker gave him the right for an appeal, that's when they stepped up. And we'll go more into detail about that later. You know, but they are determined to kill Mumia. We must stop what is doing. We couldn't do nothing about Malcolm because we didn't know the plot. We didn't know the plan. We could not do anything about Shea Kamara because the same thing. And our Martin Luther King, what we do know. And we're witnessing what is going on here. It is time for us to rise up and tell them, hell no. Okay, this is Noelle Hanrahan. It's February 9th. Uh, we want you to stay tuned for updates and action alerts. Uh, Noelle Hanrahan, Prison Radio, speaking with Pam Africa from the International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Look on Instagram. Look on Facebook. Um, do your research and get involved. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. Welcome back. So that was an update on the uh, health status of political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal in uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And uh, we'll keep you informed uh, about uh, these developments uh, as time rolls on. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our following segment. Hello, stranger. It seems so good to see you back again. How long has it been? Baby, 
chances for a real ceasefire to end Israel's war and siege against Gaza. Let's get to the bottom line. Both sides, Hamas and Israel, have made their offers to end one of the most brutal wars of modern times. Hamas wants a permanent ceasefire, and Israel wants a more temporary truce. Now's the hard part, negotiations through mediators to find a compromise as the war bleeds into its fifth month. With every day that passes, conditions worsen for the 2.3 million Palestinians who are surrounded, isolated, and desperate in Gaza. Zoom out, and things don't look all that stable from the U.S. vantage point across the region. Armed groups are hitting American targets in Iraq, in Syria, in Jordan, and the U.S. is now hitting back. Lebanon and Israel have daily cross-border attacks, and the U.S. has bombed targets in Yemen to stop Ansar Allah from trying to impose a naval blockade on trade with Israel. So are we witnessing the beginning of a new chapter in the Middle East, one where the United States has much less control and less ability to pursue its interests? Today we're talking with political scientist Stephen Wall, professor of international relations at Harvard University and author of The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. Stephen, it's great to have you on. Look, I mean, four months ago at the beginning of this conflict, you and I spoke and you we're very prescient about what you would saw, saw would um, evolve and come in. And I guess my big question to you today is, does the Israel-Gaza conflict, which grinds on, matter in any substantial way to the United States? What are the impacts of this conflict on President Biden, on the perception of American power in the world? Or is it trivial? Oh, it's certainly not trivial. 
Um, I mean, this has, I think, exposed uh, the double standards in American foreign policy in ways that uh, are damaging to the United States, certainly damaging uh, to the Biden administration. I don't know how many. I've lost count of how many times uh, Secretary of State Blinken has been to the region to try and make some progress. Uh, thus far, uh, he's failed uh, across the board. Um, this has, I think, uh, made the United States look more hypocritical in claiming to stand for a rules-based order, to be a defender of human rights. Uh, and, you know, when you think about it, uh, it's America's adversaries who benefit uh, most greatly from events like this, because not only does the United States look somewhat ineffectual, but it uh, makes us look inconsistent uh, in the eyes of many. And yet when it comes to try to influence Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu to not kill innocent people, and a, a country that is largely dependent on U.S. aid and support, America looks pretty darn impotent, in my view. What do you think? Yeah, well, there's two problems here. One problem about which I've written extensively in the past, of course, is American domestic politics. Uh, the United States has lots of potential leverage over Israel, which it doesn't use because that would generate a backlash from the Israel lobby, and that's a domestic political problem for Biden or any other uh, American president. The other difficulty here, and it doesn't just apply to Israel, is that in conflicts like this, others usually have more stake in the game than we do, precisely because we're so secure already. So all of the various actors in the Middle East whom we're trying to influence are hard to push around because ultimately they've got more skin in the game. They're willing to bear greater costs, and they're going to pursue their own objectives independent of what the United States does, especially uh, if the United States is not using all the leverage at its disposal. But sometimes, even if it tries, others are willing to resist. You know, Just look at the Houthis in Yemen right now, who are not very powerful, but they care more about what's going on in their neighborhood than we do. Well, one of the things that I know you've been weighing in on are the various chess pieces and moves of the players. And uh, Hamas has come out and issued its terms on what it would accept as part of a ceasefire, a very large uh, release of pr prisoners in Israel in exchange for all of the hostages uh, and, and ending uh, all conflict in, you know, for 45 days. Uh, Israel is rejecting that at the moment, and it has its terms for ceasefire. On top of this, you have Secretary of State Anthony Blinken continuing to talk to the Saudis. And somehow in that picture uh, are rumors of a Palestinian state of some sort being in there. What are the real elements that you see at play? And is there any chance that you see of this crisis leading to some constructive creation of, you know, some assembly of Palestinian justice and autonomy? Um, well, I don't think it's going to happen quickly. I mean, the the most immediate effect that this whole conflict has had is it has put the Palestinian issue back on the agenda. Uh, this had been put to one side by uh, several administrations, certainly by the Trump administration, but also by the Biden administration. Uh, the Israelis, of course, were attempting to keep the Palestinian issue off the agenda. And one could even argue that some Arab countries were not paying very close attention to it uh, anymore either. Um, and, of course, what Hamas did, unfortunately, through a very brutal attack, was to remind everyone that the fate of seven and a half million Palestinians could not be ignored forever. So it's back on the agenda. The question is whether or not you're actually going to see something tangible. Uh, the Saudis issued a statement last week suggesting that they are not going to 
play unless there's something really concrete that finally uh, comes in. They're not going to normalize relations with Israel until you actually see a genuine, uh, viable Palestinian state. We'll see if they uh, stick to that. The biggest problem we face is, you know, we've tried to get a two-state solution in the past. Uh, American presidents have occasionally worked pretty hard at it, although, again, they've rarely used all the leverage at their disposal. But the conditions for it, if anything, are uh, less propitious now, less appealing now. Uh, first of all, it's in the wake of a horrific conflict where 1,200 Israelis died and now 27,000 Gazans uh, have died. Uh, you've had the steady rightward drift of the Israeli uh, body politic over the last 10 or 20 years, which means that it's much harder to sell any kind of two-state solution in Israel now. You have a government that's committed to a greater Israel. So the issue is on the agenda. I think more and more people realize this problem will never be solved if you don't get a political uh, solution. But getting to that political solution is just as difficult as it ever was and probably more so. I want to play a tape for you of Pentagon spokesman Major General Pat Ryder commenting on some of the hot action that's just occurred um, in Iraq and with Yemen. It should be very clear that our goal here in both situations uh, is to ensure security and stability in those regions. We're not seeking to escalate. But if our forces are threatened, as I've highlighted, we will respond appropriately. My question to you is, are we being told, no, we're not escalating, but in fact, we are escalating? Yeah, um, there, there's several things going. Yes, we're escalating, as are others. It's, uh, it's not, I wouldn't want to say that the United States actually started this process. What's interesting about this is that at the very beginning of the war in Gaza, there was, I think, a pretty conscious effort by many of the interested parties to try and keep the lid on. Uh, signaling in various ways that they didn't want to see it expand. Iran made this clear. Hezbollah made this clear. To some degree, the Israelis did not want to uh, expand it beyond Gaza as well. So, And the United States certainly was hoping to confine the problem uh, to Gaza. But the longer a conflict like this goes on and the more uh, suffering is witnessed every day, the harder it is to keep the lid on, the harder it is for outsiders to remain uninvolved without appearing to be, uh, you know, complicit, either tacitly or, or actively. And that has gradually led other actors to start doing more. Uh, the most obvious case was, of course, the Houthis beginning to attack shipping in the uh, Gulf of uh, Suez as, and uh, Red Sea. But now you've also seen this beginning to happen with militias in Iraq uh, and Syria, the attack on an American uh, base in Jordan as well. So you're seeing the effort to keep the lid on uh, begin to erode. The irony in all of this, of course, is the American statement, along with some others, that our goal is always to restore deterrence, that, you know, we have to retaliate to these attacks in order to reestablish a situation of stability. And that's a perfectly acceptable goal. But if you're restoring deterrence for the 10th or 15th or 50th or 100th time, maybe you should ask yourself whether or not the actions you're taking to restore deterrence are actually making the problem worse. And I think that may be the dynamic we're now finding ourselves in. I think one of the fascinating things that's happening in the world, I often try to sort of put myself in the in the shoes of the, the Houthis or the Yemenis or the, you know, other players in this and, and, and look at how they're looking at the, at the order. You know, we used to call it the rules-based order, but let's call it the anarchic order. And, and to look at that situation and say, why does the United States get to make rules about shipping lanes? 
Why aren't we able to take actions on behalf of people we think are under siege? Do you think America's place in the world is being shoved back by some of these small players? Um, I think to some degree, yes. Uh, as I said at the outset, you know, the, part of it is the exposing elements of hypocrisy. And we all know that countries are sometimes hypocritical, but this has been an especially uh, vivid case as well. Um, with respect to the Houthis, you know, what they're doing actually, to me, highlights the importance of getting a ceasefire as rapidly as possible. They have repeatedly said that their attacks will cease once the war stops. Now, that may be a bluff. That may be lying. They may be uh, lying. But, in, but let's test them on that. If you are upset about the attacks they're uh, uh, undertaking, and we should be, and you don't want to have to get into a situation where you're constantly bombing uh, Yemen uh, in an attempt to stop them, then maybe the thing to do is get a ceasefire and see if they cease their attacks. If so, that would be a success for diplomacy. It would also be good for all of the other parties uh, involved, with the possible exception of Prime Minister Netanyahu himself. Well, if you put yourself in the shoes of Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu and look at his terrain, which I also try and do, it's overwhelmingly in support of the conflict continuing. And, and I guess that, to me, looks pretty dire for those that want to look. At, it looks dire from a position on, on Red Sea shipping. It looks dire when it comes to the state of uh, Palestinians in Gaza. I mean, do you see any way in which the alignment that Prime Minister Netanyahu has right now would be shifted by, for, by circumstances? I'd want to unpack that particular question and separate out the issue of a ceasefire to end the conflict in Gaza from the question of an establishing a, a Palestinian state. Those are two separate things. And the establishing a Palestinian state is the long-term or medium-term goal. The short-term goal that I think is in most of the party's interests is to actually end the fighting itself, in part because there isn't a military solution here. Uh, it's increasingly clear the Israeli defense forces are not going to destroy Hamas, which is the stated uh, war aim uh, there. So a ceasefire would, first of all, be very much in the interest of the Palestinian civilians who are suffering and dying. Uh, it would very much be in the American interest, where we would be seen as a peacemaker rather than encouraging uh, a conflict. Um, the war itself is costly for Israel because they have to keep uh, mobilizing troops. Uh, people are displaced as well. They are losing uh, soldiers, uh, too. Um, I think it would be in the interest of the rest of the region and certainly in uh, because it would remove the gasoline that is fueling then the expansion, the escalation that we talked about before. The one person uh, who many Israelis recognize does not have much of an interest in ending the war quickly is Prime Minister Netanyahu, because as soon as you get a ceasefire, uh, there's going to be accountability for how he mishandled things that led to the original October 7th attacks. And many people believe that the end of the war will also be the end of his uh, political career. So in a sense, he has an incentive to try and keep it going. It keeps the unity cabinet uh, intact, and it avoids the day of reckoning he is likely to face within Israeli domestic politics. Now, Steve, I see you as an ultra-realist, so this uh, next question may be unfair, but it has to do with another lid that may be coming off for Israel, and that's what's brewing in the International Court of Justice and the requirement that Israel respond to the International Court of Justice findings that there may be plausible genocide underway. Israel uh, uh, is required to respond to that finding, and I'm just interested both where you think Israel will go with that, but also, again, in the court of global opinion in this, 
about the finding possibly of genocide, do you think that has any force in chastening the direction of Israel? Yeah, I think this is a really great question. And even as a realist, I think words and labels uh, do matter. Uh, it's important to note the International Court of Justice did not find that Israel had been committing a genocide. It found that there was a plausible grounds for concern, uh, issued orders that it should take, that Israel should take steps to avoid this, and authorized a lengthier investigation as to what has happened, which was probably going to take months, if, if not years. This has already had some immediate effects. You know, a Japanese trading firm announced a couple of days ago that it was severing ties with an Israeli arms company over this issue in light of the ICJ uh, ruling. So it's already having some short-term consequences. But over the longer term, it's, uh, it's affecting uh, Israel's image in a fundamental way. That word now gets associated with Israel in ways that, uh, you know, are obviously deeply uh, troubling uh, for, for everyone. Um, it's the same reason that Israel was very concerned when people started describing the situation on the West Bank as one of apartheid. By the way, that's not just groups like Amnesty International, that's also Israeli human rights groups as well, because that's a label that carries with it a whole series of images. Uh, not surprisingly, Israel has fought the use of the term apartheid. They are now actively contesting the use of the term genocide because they understand that words do matter here and are going to shape uh, opinions. It to the extent that that label gets assigned, um, it does make it harder for other countries to cooperate. It creates problems for politicians who want to work with Israel for one reason or another. It certainly makes it more difficult for Arab countries to move closer to Israel, despite some uh, common interests as well. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's not surprising, therefore, that this has become such a hot and contested political issue. Um, even if that label doesn't ultimately get applied, I think it's uh, abundantly clear that what Israel has done has been conducting sort of massive war crimes in Gaza, just as Hamas also conducted war crimes in, in attacking Israeli civilians on October 7th. And that's going to be a permanent uh, stain on Israel's national image, too. Let me ask you something about the U.S. dynamic in Israel right now. We've seen in the West Bank uh, many Palestinians, Palestinians have been killed and harassed uh, by settlers. Uh, President Biden has actually begun to actively, proactively sanction Israeli settlers. First time uh, that has happened. So the dynamics in the West Bank don't get a lot of airtime, but it, but it raises the broad question of what Israel's ultimate objective is. But how do you figure in West Bank dynamics um, into, this, into this problem? Yeah, well, that's been, uh, you know, an underlying issue for a for a long time, and it's one of the reasons why people uh, kept pointing out that you know, agreements like the Abraham Accords that were negotiated under the Trump administration uh, were ultimately not a peace plan because they didn't solve the most fundamental uh, part of the conflict, which is, again, the long conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, and that as Israel's government, uh, you know, moved rightward and eventually began to include uh, as ministers, uh, settlers and advocates of a greater Israel, uh, this problem is just going to get worse. Um, and unfortunately, both the Trump administration and also the Biden administration paid almost no attention to this problem until, uh, you know, the last uh, several months uh, or so. I think what it highlights, though, is that Israel does not have a political strategy uh, here. 
Um, and when I say that is if you're committed to greater Israel and if you're committed, as Prime Minister Netanyahu has been throughout his political career, to opposing any form of Palestinian state, then what are your options? Uh, your only options are permanent apartheid, uh, that you have to deny political rights to seven and a half million Palestinians uh, or uh, and by the way, that's roughly the same number of uh, Israeli Jews. Or you have to get rid of them in some fashion. You have to do ethnic cleansing. You have to expel them from the territories or, or worse. Those are your only two options if you're committed to a greater Israel. And, of course, you're not willing to have a multi-ethnic democracy where everybody has political rights. And this is why the United States and most of the rest of the world have, have said that a two-state solution is the answer here. It has to be two viable states. It has to be two states that can thrive next door to one another. Uh, but unfortunately, we've been unable to bring that about. And as I said uh, earlier, unfortunately, the obstacles to getting there now seem bigger than they ever have been before. Let me ask you a big question about your book, The Israel Lobby. And it's, I'm just wondering, is the Israeli lobby stumbling? I think it's facing obstacles it hasn't faced before. Uh, you know, if you go back 40, 50 years, uh, was, support for Israel was bipartisan. Israel had a very positive image in American politics, sort of a plucky underdog surrounded by hostile Arabs. It was seen as something of a strategic partner uh, in the Cold War as well. So uh, as many people, including some officials in groups like APAC, used to say, you know, we had a pretty easy product uh, to sell. Uh, that's, I think, uh, fundamentally different today. And the reason is the long occupation, uh, the sense that Israel was never going to give back the territories it had conquered during the Six-Day War. It was actually trying to uh, essentially colonize them, fill them with, with settlers. Uh, its treatment of the Palestinians was increasingly harsh, uh, repeated bombing campaigns in Gaza, etc. Suddenly, you don't have a lucky underdog. You have a powerful, wealthy nuclear-armed Israel treating this subject population in horrific ways. And you see this most evident in a generational change, that people under 40, including, I should add, a number of younger American Jews, with just a very different attitude uh, towards Israel. That has not played itself out in the political system as yet, because, again, APAC and others are quite effective, well-organized, well-established, have uh, access to lots of, uh, you know, PACs and other sources of money, and money drives American politics in all sorts of ways and on many, many issues. So it's not going to be a sea change overnight in American politics, but I think what we are seeing is um, essentially uh, a lobbying group that can't win the arguments now on the basis of facts, logic, and morality, and therefore has to use sort of raw political power, uh, intimidation, trying to control the discourse, trying to prevent people from speaking out on these issues, um, because it can't win the fight if it's just an open uh, discourse. I think that I think you're starting to see some cracks in the edifice. Let me just ask you finally about about President Biden. We are in the 2024 race. Think about the equation in his mind. He has spoken frequently about the trauma of October 7th and the Israeli public. And I understand that. Um, but he has not talked about or very infrequently about the enormous suffering and situation of the Palestinians right now. And I'm just wondering whether or not that equation, which might have worked in 1974, really works in 2024 and whether or not we may be looking for one of the first times I can remember of foreign policy 
actually undermining uh, a presidential election and mattering in a significant way? What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I and I, nobody quite knows the answer here. I mean, in some respects, Biden is damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. Right. If he if he comes down hard on Israel, uh, you know, st- threatens to withhold aid, really pushes uh, for a ceasefire, et cetera. He will alienate uh, Israeli supporters. Uh, there'll be lots of op eds written against him. There'll be people denouncing him on Congress. Some members of the Democratic Party. Uh, will protest on this. There might be some effect on campaign contributions, et cetera. So he knows uh, that there's a cost to be paid if he does that. But of course, if he doesn't do that, if he sides with Israel as he has, he's alienating young progressives who were very energetic in supporting him in 2020. He's certainly alienating Arab American populations, and they are critical in a couple of battleground states. I think the other thing that's going on here is that Biden has a very traditional view of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. I don't think he has fully taken aboard how much that relationship has changed and how much Israel has changed uh, since, say, the years that he was in the Senate. And he may not understand uh, as well as I wish he did um, that a more independent stance would actually be better for the United States, better for his campaign, but in the long run, probably better for Israel as well. Well, we will leave it there. I very much appreciate the conversation. Stephen Walt, one of America's leading political scientists, thanks so much for joining us today. Nice talking with you, as always, Steve. So what's the bottom line? My guest, Stephen Walt, makes some important points that don't often get enough attention. First, America is strategically distracted, so its actions are often inconsistent and contradictory. Second, even if America wanted things to go a certain way, other smaller powers can still get their way. Global military power used to work during the Cold War because the competition with the Soviet Union was everywhere. But today, when it comes to the great and powerful United States just trying to get Israel to stop killing innocent civilians, the United States looks impotent. That's because Israel is focused on what it wants, and the U.S. has other priorities. And the Palestinian issue is still very low on America's totem pole. The story of Gaza, the real horror, is not just Israel's unwillingness to change the temperature and find a lasting and fair arrangement with the Palestinians for its own sake, but it also is the story of America's weakness around the world. And that's the bottom line. Welcome back. And that was a report uh, on U.S. foreign policy towards Palestine. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Phyllis Hyman uh, with the track entitled Love Too Good to Last, and this is the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, February the 11th, 2024. We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Now we want to move into a report on developments in West Africa, uh, three uh, states in the Sahel, uh, Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger, have formally uh, withdrawn uh, from the economic community of West African states, uh, saying uh, that they have imposed sanctions on their country, uh, that they are non-cooperative and non-helpful in regard to fighting terrorism in those states. Let's listen uh, to uh, this uh, report. Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso say they've quit the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS. They accuse the regional bloc of deviating from its founding principles. The three Sahelian countries are under military rule. The takeovers took place in Mali in 2020 and 2021, Burkina Faso in 2022, and Niger in 2023. ECOWAS says the three countries remain important members of the community and pledged to find a negotiated solution. The African Union also backs a dialogue to end the crisis. So this week on the program, we ask, are Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso better off or worse off outside ECOWAS? And what can be done to end the standoff and find a lasting solution to the perennial instability in this part of West Africa? I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, let's now bring in our panel of experts. Joining us from Abuja, David Otto Endele, Director for the Geneva Center for Africa. In Lagos, Chuks Mko, Global Affairs Analyst. And joining us from London via Zoom, Dr. Alex Vines, Head of Africa Program at the HSM House. A warm welcome to you all, gentlemen, and thank you for joining in this discussion. Let me start off with you, David. Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso have announced they are leaving the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS. How do the three respective governments justify their decision to exit ECOWAS? Do they have a case? Well, of course, uh, the, uh, uh, the trial uh, forming the Alliance of uh, uh, Sahel States, you know, uh, the Liktako-Guma Alliance, or you can call it, uh, came up uh, with a decision and argued uh, that, you know, ECOWAS, um, you know, had failed uh, in the, um, uh, some kind of the, the precedent that uh, was set by its forefathers. Uh, they accused uh, the ECOWAS uh, regional body uh, of uh, working, you know, against uh, the, uh, the interest of its member states, uh, of course, themselves. Uh, they talked about the fact that the, um, the regional body has not been able to assist uh, them in, in fighting against uh, security, especially the jihadist movement. Um, they also accused them of uh, uh, some kind of uh, liaison or working with uh, what they describe as uh, foreign elements uh, to um, undermine uh, the, uh, the integrity and national uh, security of, the, um, of, uh, of, of their state. But mm-hmm. I think they also talked about the fact that uh, the um, sanctions that were levied upon them uh, was um, inhuman, you know, so... Uh, I think, you know, um, what we're experiencing here is, um, uh, you know, uh, what was expected, uh, especially after the issuance uh, of ECOWAS of the threat uh, to military intervention. 
so these countries have gone ahead at this point in time, uh, previously establishing an alliance in September of uh, 2023, mm -hmm. um, and not um, uh, you know, honoring the Article Treaty of ECOWAS with request that for a member to quit, they must give a one-year uh, notice. You know, so we're left to see uh, you know, if this verbal right. uh, notice to leave uh, it's just a precedent to a formal notice. But uh, as we speak, uh, you know, things are still unraveling. So, Alex, uh, uh, you know, a raft of accusations there, um, you know, against ECOWAS from the uh, three countries. But, you know, looking at their decision to withdraw, is this withdrawal in the best interest of the three countries? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, look, they're going to need to have uh, a visa regime. Uh, they're not going to have freedom of movement across the 15-member ECOWAS uh, region. Uh, one of them is also saying that they may consider pulling out of the West African Monetary Union, which is uh, the, the, the union that pins the, 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 the West African CFA franc, uh, which is pegged to the euro. So it doesn't make economic sense. This is emotional. It's political. Uh, my view is the timing of it is a statement of insecurity by these junters. Um, there's been frenetic uh, diplomatic travel, including to Paris. Uh, the chief of army staff of Algeria was in Paris just recently, first visit uh, of, of such a person for 17 years. Mm -hmm. President Tunubu Nigeria been there. Uh, President Ouattara Cote d'Ivoire been there. And so this is all about politics, but it doesn't make a lot of sense economically. These are small, very weak states uh, they represent only 8% of the economies of, of ECOWAS. Um, and so I can see why it makes good headlines, but it doesn't make good economics. Uh, Chuck, so I want to get your view here. Has the uh, economic body, has the ECOWAS been a little bit too harsh on these uh, three countries? I, I, I think they've been very, very harsh. Um, they started off wanting to intervene by uh, taking a wrong step of bullying the Niger Republic, threatening to overrun the country, and um, that you don't do as an organization. You, you, do, not do, you do not threaten people. You do not bully uh, a sister um, nation uh, like Niger. And Burkina Faso and Mali uh, and Niger share a common destiny. They have a very strong affinity Mm -hmm. uh, the existence from independence, they've had experience with military rule um, in Burkina Faso. You know, Burkina Faso is uh, famously known by characters like uh, Kompari and, and Sankara. Uh, Mali had had a, the same kind of experience with military shortly after independence and Niger Republic. And being a member of ECOWAS with these things that has happened, uh, they, they, they were led by misguided politicians. All ECOWAS needed to do was to persuade and use the third alternative of negotiating the military out of power. But it chose to bully Niger Republic and therefore forcing them together to say no. So I, I think that they overstepped their bounds um, you know, by, by wanting to intervene the way they did. They've suffered out now, mm -hmm. but the wrong step has already take, been taken and it's been followed by, by sanctioning them. And, and that's another wrong step. When you have situations like that, you, you persuade, um, you, you use diplomacy and other uh, carrots to right. bring them back to, to, to give up power. I want to get your view here, David. Did ECOWAS overstate its mandate? Has it been too harsh on these three countries? 
Well, I think if ECOWAS has thought about the, uh, uh, the secondary impact, you know, the third other effect or the unintended consequence, um, I, I think, you know, we would not be where we are. Um, I think, you know, what ECOWAS, you know, was going by the books. I mean, of course, uh, uh, the uh, ECOWAS, uh, uh, you know, Lome Agreement makes it very clear that, you know, uh, unconstitutional removal of power, um, you know, has consequences. But I think where ECOWAS hit the... Uh, uh, the crossbar, I call it, uh, is at the point at which uh, it used uh, the, uh, the, the, the threat of a military intervention uh, instead of um, uh, uh, kind of uh, prioritizing uh, a negotiated settlement. I mean, of course, ECOWAS would argue uh, that, you know, they, uh, they were doing it simultaneously. But I mm -hmm. think, you know, the threat of a military intervention would have been off the table altogether or completely. Uh, we had argued that from the start. Uh, so I think, you know, this would be uh, seen by ECOWAS as of its own making. Um, and, and this is why, as we speak, uh, there is an ongoing conference which um, ECOWAS is holding uh, to uh, kind of train its members on how to negotiate, you know, how to uh, communicate uh, during conflict. Right. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this uh, ongoing event, uh, which is taking place in Nigeria, is um, uh, simply as a result of uh, the consequence of, uh, you know, the military threat which was issued against um, countries like uh, Niger. So, uh, I think, yes, you know, to answer your question directly, uh, in my opinion, and perhaps in ECOWAS's own opinion, uh, they, um, they hit the wrong target in terms of the, uh, the preliminary, um, you know, talk of uh, a military intervention, which has now alienated uh, three countries. Uh, it's, it's unprecedented in history right. uh, to have three countries leave uh, a regional bloc like ECOWAS. Yes, they will suffer, but it creates a very bad precedent you know, for ECOWAS in terms of its uh, ability to sustain uh, the current 12 members if we consider that three have already left. So Alex, um, the unintended consequences, let's look at that for a minute. Are there any political ramifications within Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger? And what would this all mean for a political transition? The reality is there's been plenty of mediation by all sorts of people going to Niamey and, and, and Ouagadougou and, and, and Bamako, uh, you know, on Nigeria, for example, on Niger, you had the Sultan of Sokotu, a very influential uh, 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 individual who's been trying to, to, to mediate. And it has all been about the timetable of transition to return to constitutional rule and then elections. And uh, my uh, view is that, the, uh, that once you get men in uniform uh, into political position, they start to become politicians and they start to uh, uh, become increasingly interested in the trappings of power, not, not uh, being uh, technical people any longer. And this is the problem. I mean, Mali is meant to have an election this year. It will not. Uh, and we have seen very good mediation in the past from ECOWAS. So it's wrong to say that they don't know how to mediate. There have been good offices, quiet diplomacy, very effective, well-documented over 20 years, including... Uh, uh, in the past, a transition of a year from a military uh, regime to, 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 a, um, to elections and then a democratic government in Niger. So the problem, I think, is, uh, is, is about power, actually, uh, and the difficulties of getting entrenched individuals who are not accountable to, to their populations to agree to a timetable to, 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 to return to a constitutional rule. Chuck, your thoughts on that? Is this all about maintaining power rather than ECOWAS having overstepped its mandate? Um, when, when a man has power and access to resources of a nation, he's got to give it up. 
So it, this is about power. And um, the people that are involved are, are brilliant military officers. So what you can do, what, what, what you must do is to negotiate with them, recognizing that they, have, they must have ego problems. And some level of ego is required. You need ego, some level of ego to be successful in whatever you are doing. So in approaching them, um, you've you got to deploy the brightest minds in, in negotiating uh, these guys out of power. By the way, by the way, they, 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 they are citizens, these military leaders are, are citizens, bona fide citizens of their respective countries. And in their very presence, um, the, the, the politicians were reckless, misguided politicians ran down their countries in their very presence to negotiate them out of power. You need to be patient and it's going to take time. ECOWAS was in a hurry. So David, um, is ECOWAS worried uh, here at all? Because who wins? and who loses in this whole standoff? What does Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger, what do they gain by leaving, or what does ECOWAS gain in the absence of the three? Well, I think, first of all, one has to agree that uh, ECOWAS has been consistently inconsistent in terms of how it has dealt with uh, uh, these military coups. Um, uh, and, and this is, is something that should not be forgotten. Um, uh, Niger Republic, for example, which was kind of the last straw, uh, in ECOWAS' uh, way of handling things, you know, was seen by many as, you know, haven't taken the uh, the large end of the uh, short stick, you know, and many believe that um, the way that ECOWAS had reacted to Niger was very different from the way that they reacted to other military junta's, and you know, ECOWAS of course was accused, uh, you know, um, and rightly so, uh, of um, you know um, trying to. Uh, undermine the, um, the national sovereignty of, of, of the country by saying that a military intervention was the next step. So I think, you know, in terms of uh, the, the who wins and who loses, uh, both sides will lose. I mean, ECOWAS cannot afford uh, to be seen as, an, as a regional body that, you know, uh, loses three members at a go. Uh, at the same time, uh, countries like Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger will have to think about how do they manage uh, the free border movement, the free trade, uh, being landlocked countries? You know, do they have to renegotiate uh, with uh, countries like um, Algeria? Uh, but of course, I think there will be some aspect of bilateral agreements. You know, countries run on, on the basis of interest. So there are no winners and no losers. But I think what we need to look at here is how does ECOWAS, you know, kind of, you know, renegotiate its position right. and go back to these three member states and say, listen, let's think about this again. Uh, let's talk about uh, this relationship and see how we can mend it. So, Alex, as we look, about, uh, look at that renegotiation, I want to come back again and look at the sort of alliances that these three countries may be looking to build now because by exiting ECOWAS, uh, Alex, and having cut ties with France already last year, what is the alternative these countries are looking for? What are their long-term plans or the aspirations when it comes to allies economically or politically here? So as, uh, as we've all discussed, uh, there are no winners out of, it, out of this. ECOWAS loses, the, these three Sahel states are in, in poor shape. The reality is in Mali and Burkina Faso, the internal security situation is, is very poor indeed. Um, their economies are, 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 um, are, are struggling, even with higher gold prices. It's, it's still a very difficult situation. The paradox for me is that Niger is a, little, is a bit different from the other two, mm -hmm. uh, and I have at times been puzzled that they have decided to tie themselves as closely together to, to, to these two as they have. It is a, just an interesting footnote that the Guinean junta uh, has, has um, been very 
clearly trying to make sure that it's distanced from what's happening with these three. So going forward, uh, as your other speakers have, have alluded to, I think it's about negotiation. At the moment, this is politics because the reality is you'd need to give a year's notice to, to withdraw from ECOWAS. So it is a lengthy process. There, are, uh, there has been precedent previously. Mauritania has left ECOWAS, so there is some experience within it. Uh, and the economic ramifications of this are very serious. Um, it's interesting that Mali, that is the most um, vocally anti-French, uh, is the one that has said it will remain within the West African Monetary Union, which is the, the, the West African um, CFA franc pegged to the euro. I actually am not sure that these military men have a very good grasp of international economics. And so I do worry that they, they are good about security, mm -hmm. but they're not a, about, good about growing economies creating jobs and public goods for their populations. So uh, this is a worrying time. My own prognosis for two of these countries, possibly three, is they're very vulnerable for a counter coup, unfortunately, because populations are going to get increasingly frustrated and exacerbated that the military men are not delivering the security and prosperity that they uh, initially hoped that they would do. Indeed, we will continue with this conversation in just a moment, but on that note, Let's take a short break and when we come back, we will explore possible solutions to this regional problem that has now taken a geopolitical turn to stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Let's continue with the discussion. Still with me in Abuja, David Otto Endele, in Lagos, Chuck Nko, and in London, uh, Dr. Alex Vines. Um, David, let me start off with you here because last year the three countries formed the Liptako Goma Charter. That was a security pact that was a combination of military and economic efforts between the three countries. What effect has this had on security in the Sahel? Can the so called Sahelian alliance on its own really defeat terrorism and insurgency? Well, what we've seen is uh, a structure, uh, what I call a verbal structure of uh, establishing the Liptako-Goma alliance itself, uh, talking about um, a common defense pact uh, to fight against uh, uh, terrorism, but of course uh, to also defend against any extra, uh, external uh, aggressors. You know, we haven't seen the blueprint in terms of uh, how that you know, the strategic implementation plan. Uh, but what we know uh, so far is that, um, you know, these three countries, of course, are facing a common threat, uh, and uh, they have also linked uh, themselves very strongly to uh, Russia uh, and uh, the, the Wagner Group, uh, which, you know, of course, is the new alliance, uh, which came uh, in the back of the, uh, ex the, ex the, uh, the exit of France and uh, other, um, you know, um, countries from the region. So we haven't seen the... Uh, the, you know, how that uh, alliance, you know, will be able to, uh, of course, you know, come up with a common strategy, mm -hmm. um, you know, which, you know, could s somehow be similar to uh, the G5 Sahel, which, you know, they, they, they've also vacated. Um, you know, so 
uh, we're hoping that you know we would see some uh, coordination and collaboration between the three states. You know, from a from a counterinsurgency point of view, uh, them working hand in gloves. Um, you know, dealing with the insurgency issue. But it all comes down to the plan. I mean, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen the counterterrorism strategy which uh, these three nations, uh, you know, have put in place, uh, maybe similar to something like the uh, multinational Gen Tax Force. Um, so um, we are yet to see the impact of that. But what we can see on ground uh, is the fact that um, there is an increase uh, mm -hmm. in jihadist activities uh, within that Liptakuguma um, Triangle, uh, which, you know, of course, uh, would be head a headache uh, for these countries. Uh, I understand from the uh, uh, recent communication that the Burkina Faso uh, president uh, gave an interview and he talked about the fact that Russia is, right. uh, you know, has agreed uh, not just to supply weapons, you know, but to, uh, to help the country in, in strategic and tactical operations. Uh, so uh, let's see how that goes and, and good luck to, to them. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, it's, it's up to them how they, they deal with this at this point in time. Uh, over. Alex, you know, looking at the security implication, um, you know, in the Sahel region, how might the exit of the three, though, impact regional security dynamics, especially given the ongoing security challenges that um, uh, David has mentioned in the region? We all agree that the security is deteriorating uh, significantly in Mali and Burkina Faso. Um, it's problematic, but, uh, but not quite so, so grave in Niger. A and Russia has been, over the last year, significantly uh, wooing the, the junta in Ouagadougou to, to, to be involved. Uh, the original Russian offer, in fact, was, was uh, just to, to provide security for, for economic assets, the gold mines, and, and the uh, Ouagadougou junta said, no, that's not what they wanted. They pushed back on that. But uh, clearly, uh, a, some new agreement has now been reached, and there are uh, uh, this deployment of, of, of Russian military personnel to, to, to Burkina. Niger uh, is uh, uh, still playing a, a much broader multipolar game, uh, and there is still American security assets, a drone base, for example, in, in Niger. And I think the Nigerian will be a bit more careful in uh, the way that they try and balance their, their, their partnerships. Um, it, the, the way things are going at the moment, uh, Russia is the, the kind of last resort place right. that, that, uh, that, that uh, juntas go to because nobody else wants to su supply and support and, and assist them, which is what we're seeing in Burkina and we've seen in Mali, for example. Chuck, I want to wrap you in here and get your view very briefly. Um, uh, has anything changed? Has, has the security situation alleviated, uh, particularly um, uh, following the uh, departure of the three from the G5 Sahel? The three countries also need to look outside because, um, for instance, in Nigeria, we have not been able to deal with our internal security challenges. And like they rightly complained, the... Um, They've not been get, able to get help from, from ECOWAS in solving the, the challenges that have faced. France couldn't help them. In fact, that's what led to their insistence that France has to leave the shores of their nation. So mm -hmm. they, they need to look elsewhere, not just Russia and um, you know, the Wagmar group. They need to sit down, collaborate. Uh, the three nations, Burkina Faso, Mali, and, and Niger, they need to deploy resources. The global challenge that we face within, uh, within security I, is something I don't think that one government is going to solve at a go or in a long, in a long run. But I think that 
um, the global population, the global challenges, the environmental challenges, um, lack of sustainability effort and all that is going to continue to lead to insecurity. So you need a government and a group of people that can come together. Burkina Faso has gone through a very difficult and challenging time as a nation in dealing with insecurity. So they need to find a solution outside of ECOWAS, right. outside of Russia, finding uh, you know, a, a bilateral arrangement that they can make to solve the problem of, 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 the, of the Sahel. They have a common problem. They need to deal with it, but definitely not from ECOWAS. So let's look at the solutions here, David, uh, to you first here. What sort of logical solutions, because we've talked about the need for negotiation and looking forward, what sort of logical steps uh, does ECOWAS need to bring back um, you know, the members? And are there possibilities, though, uh, for ECOWAS to encourage the reintegration of the three? Um, ECOWAS needs to, first of all, uh, realign itself to be uh, a regional bloc that is not seen um, at least by these three member states as you know, having influence from external parties. You know, so they've got to look into that, uh, which of course is a key element uh, which uh, these member states have mentioned. Uh, then of course, you know, ECOWAS should not uh, forget that it, it did uh, promise to carry out a military intervention against Niger. I think what ECOWAS should do now is to use that same capabilities to help these um, countries to fight against insurgency. Uh, because if ECOWAS does have the capacity to invade Niger, as it says, uh, then of course it should use that capacity to uh, carry out uh, joint military operations with these countries. That's something they should propose on the table. Uh, I think the, the other key element here um, is that you know, ECOWAS needs to go back on the joint board um, you know, with these countries and be very clear in terms of the, the, uh, the governance and the democratic processes. You know, these countries you know, should not uh, use this as an excuse uh, to stay in power. Um, you know, they should have a definite timeline in terms of, you know, transition, you know, mm -hmm. from uh, uh, military governance to a democratic system. Uh, that should be very clear. And ECOWAS should also uh, make sure that it institutes a mechanism that does not allow for constitutional coup d'etat, you know, to happen. Uh, because, of course, you know, that will be ECOWAS's position uh, to deal with the underlying causes. You cannot, you know, have a double standard where some countries uh, or leaders, you know, are changing the constitution right. or, or abusing the democratic process. Uh, and then, of course, you know, they, 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 get, a, they get away with it. Uh, but those who carry out military coups, uh, you, know, uh, you know, are being pilloried. So I think it's very important that, you know, ECOWAS carries out this, this uh, triple approach uh, in order to win back, uh, perhaps, you know, the hearts and minds. Remember that these three countries have not left officially. Uh, they've just made a verbal statement. Right. Uh, the official process of a one-year notification is still not yet fulfilled. Uh, so uh, there's still time, you know, to turn the tides around, but ECOWAS must take the lead uh, in doing so. Alex, is there room for renegotiation here? Oh, definitely. This is all about politics and negotiation. Uh, and uh, the junters, as we've uh, all, all three of us, I think, agree, uh, are trying to retain power. And so it is about how to negotiate down a time frame for, for, for a uh, credible uh, election process and return to constitutional rule. So we'll, we'll see. The, the, the problem is that, the, for example, the Malian junta has now been in power for over four years. That's almost the equivalent of a normal electoral cycle in West Africa. And so the longer you're in, as one of your uh, other guests said, the sweeter it becomes if, uh, if you've got the trappings of the state and, and, and you haven't even had to do an election to do that. All you did was stage a coup and throw some people out and then say, I'm now in charge.
David, I want to get your final comment here because according to the Blocks Treaty, member states wishing to withdraw must give a written notice uh, for one year. Um, what do you see happening during that time? Well, I think, you know, this is a treaty and, uh, you know, uh, state uh, sovereignty surpasses any regional block. Um, Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger are within their rights to not even give any notice at all. Um, of course, because, you know, uh, you know uh, from, from, from a technical point of view, they are no longer members of uh, uh, the ECOWAS because, of course, you know, they, they've been suspended, you know, and sanctioned. Um, you know, so they, they do not have uh, as much uh, uh, of, of a tie to ECOWAS as would be a normal member. Um, you know, but so, you know, this is some of the arguments that, you know, they believe, um, you know, does not really uh, permit them to give any one-year notice. And, and, and as I said in the in the verbal statement, um, you know, this is an immediate, um, you know, action uh, to, to leave. Um, so, you know, the one-year notice thing is, is something that, um, uh, you know, it's, it comes in under normal circumstances, like in the case of Mauritania in 2003 or so. Uh, but, uh, but I think what we have to be very clear here is that um, uh, the, the sovereignty of, of member states surpasses uh, the regional bloc. And, and this is also very clear in the... Um, uh, in, in ECOWAS's own treaty that, you know, the respect for the rights of sovereignty of member states, uh, you know, comes before anything else. So um, let's see how that, how, that, how that process goes on. But uh, be rest assured uh, that if these three countries wish to, uh, you know, leave immediately, um, th there is nothing else that, uh, you know, would tie them to uh, maybe filling out forms, you know, and, and saying that, uh, you know, they, they have one more year to leave. Uh, you know, you cannot be tied down to a regional block. Uh, especially one that, you know, you have been suspended from I indefinitely. Indeed. Thank you all very much for that lively discussion. But that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our guests, David Otto Endele, Director for Geneva Center for Africa, Chuk Tumko, Global Affairs Analyst, and Dr. Alex Vines, Head of Africa Program at the Chatham House in London. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation through our social media platforms on Facebook and as a formerly Twitter. And you can watch this and other editions of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. Do join us again next week for more Talk Africa. For me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, it's goodbye. Welcome back. And that was a discussion on uh, the withdrawal of the Alliance of Sahel States, uh, Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger from the Economic Community of West African States. And we'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment on African American History Month.
Welcome back, and that's Detroit's own Anita Baker with the track entitled Rules. And uh, February is African American History Month. Uh, this year represents the 98th uh, anniversary of uh, Negro History Week, uh, later uh, reformed uh, to Black History Month in 1976. Uh, and today, go back and review the Haitian Revolution, uh, such an important historical event. Uh, in regard to African people all over the world, particularly here in the United States. And we're going to listen to a rare archival audio file of an interview with C.L.R. James, the uh, African-Caribbean historian and political scientist, uh, cultural critic, uh, in an interview he did with uh, Studs Terkel back in 1970. Let's listen uh, to uh, this segment. Christopher Columbus landed first in the New World at the island of San Salvador and after praising God inquired urgently for gold. The natives, Red Indians, were peaceable and friendly and directed him to Haiti, a large island, nearly as large as Ireland, rich, they said, in the yellow metal. He sailed to Haiti, one of his ships being wrecked the Haitian Indians helped him so willingly that very little was lost, and of the articles which they brought on shore, not one was stolen. The Spaniards, the most advanced Europeans of their day, annexed the island, called it Hispaniola, and took the backward natives under their protection. They introduced Christianity, forced labor in mines, murder, rape, bloodhounds, strange diseases, and artificial famine by the destruction of cultivation to starve the rebellious. These and other requirements of the higher civilization reduced the native population from an estimated half a million, perhaps a million, to 60,000 in 15 years. And thus it is that Dr. C.L.R. James, a very distinguished scholar, reads the first two paragraphs of his prologue, a remarkable book, a classic, The Black Jacobins, which deals with the Toussaint Louverture-led Black Slave Rebellion in San Domingo two years after the French Revolution. In these two paragraphs, Dr. James, your style of writing, of course, is a very salubrious one indeed, but the bite, the irony, and the truth, you might say, of white man in all these years, of Western civilization, so-called, in these two paragraphs, you've almost essentialized it. Yes, I think so, and I wrote it quite naturally. I didn't have to search, but I am a West Indian, and we in the West Indies are very much aware of the contrast between what the white man says and what he does, because we are Western civilized in our orientation, so we are aware of all the things he's saying, much more than people who speak a different language or live a different type of civilization. This very point you make, which you point out, Professor James is now visiting professor at the Northwestern University. Uh, the fact that you're West Indian, this has always been a fascinating historical point, isn't it? it we is. think among the leaders and the whole black liberation movement through the years have been West Indians. Yes, we have had a whole lot of them. We have had Marcus Garvey. We have had Aimé Césaire, the poet, with that magnificent poem on Africa in which he stated the question of negritude. We have had uh, René Marin, who won the Prix Goncourt with a book, Batouala, on Africa. We have 
have had uh, George Padmore, Marcus Garvey, as I said, and we have had, there's no doubt about it, that Malcolm X's mother was a West Indian, and that had something to do with it, and Stokely Carmichael was born and grew up there as a boy. I also took some part. I believe it is something that is worthwhile, and I know and feel myself as a West Indian as Padmore was. It's as though two... Two cultures are fused, in a sense. Yes, we are not admitted completely into the Western culture, but we have all the possibilities of developing it. So I'm being uh, kept back at home. We went abroad and made the best use of both the opportunities of education and the impulse towards freedom, which we felt in the island. That is the reason why the West Indians have done so well. And I would like to add this, that Fidel Castro and the Cubans are not all black people, Fidel isn't black at all, but the attitude of the revolution and what they are doing is essentially a West Indian revolution, similar to what Toussaint Louverture did. Yes, so we come, in fact, you have a, an appendix to your book, uh, an epilogue. You wrote the book in 1938, how remarkably prescient and prophetic uh, Professor James' book is, because he dealt with the nature of Africa and the possible independence movements back then, but the, the epilogue from Toussaint Louverture to Castro. Now, Toussaint Louverture, and it's, it's imperative, of course, that white people know this, uh, more blacks do, or we know that younger blacks are aware of this. I had difficulty finding this book, by the way, in white bookstores. I found it at the Ellis Bookshop on South Cottage, which is significant in itself, I think. I think the book now is being sold and read everywhere. Yes. I think the movement on the whole... It is being read and studied in universities, predominantly white in the United States. That is a fact. Although it's the black movement that has given it the great impetus. Perhaps we should dwell upon the nature of this book, and it's a terribly important one. It's the, sub the Black Jacobins, the subtitle, Toussaint Louverture and the San Domingo Revolution. Now, here you, you describe a scene. Uh, the uh, Spaniards came, the French, the British. They found a great deal of profit to be made in the West Indies, San Domingo, Haiti. And it now, was the wealthiest colony in the world at the time, not only in the West Indies. And so, but it could only be done. You describe, of course, the slave trade and the nature of the slave ships and the yes. incredible brutishness. So the question is, how could a people, the black people in this case, the Africans, and this, well, I'll ask you about the mulattoes in a moment, the Creoles, how could they survive is the question. This is the key. The question is this. Number one, they were a people, obviously, who had basically a very fine physique. Otherwise, they would have been wiped away by the sheer objective circumstances of the Middle Passage and their lives. They had a fine physique, and secondly, which is a most important point, they obviously were a highly civilized people. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to be integrated into the, sla into the sugar production in the way that they were and learn as rapidly as they did the language and all the uh, techniques of Western civilization. They were a civilized people in Africa, and today people are more and more recognizing that even when they were slaves in Africa, they were slaves of a certain organized society. That is what must be remembered about the West Indian. And he was more fortunate than he was in the United States because the islands were small. 
immensely concentrated. The sugar plantation had many of them living together, so they were closely connected. And this backbone of civilization in Africa and African physical strength, and then having to learn the elements of Western civilization made them what they did and what they have become. Ah, so we come to several points that Dr. James raises, and again, the question of submerged history or suppressed history that there was a highly developed, I know Basil Davidson, among others, points Basil this out. Davidson is doing a lot of that work, and that work is very important, and I'm very glad that Basil Davidson is doing it, because I have to say there is a tendency to criti criticism, sharp criticism of people who are white, because they are white. And Basil Davidson is a white man who would be an adornment to any black university. But in his books, whether it be The Lost Cities of Africa, others, he speaks and indeed many anthropologists now are discovering it. There was a highly developed civilization before the slave ships came. Yes, not only that, the man who I know has carried that to the highest point is Professor George Roig. He used to be at Rochester, and he's now professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. And he's doing some work on that subject, which is the very finest and most developed that I know. I myself am writing something, and most of my work is based not only on previous knowledge, but on what he and I have worked out together. Before I ask you further about the book, we went to the book, we should point out to the audience that Professor James is a historic figure. I hope you don't mind my saying this. Not a museum. Professor James was an acquaintance of Nkrumah. Uh, he had met him when you discovered him, when he was going to the University of Pennsylvania. He was a friend of Dr. Du Bois. He uh, was a friend of George Padmore, a remarkable figure, too little known well, to... A close ally of George Padmore. I used to know Marcus Garvey, too. You, you, oh, no, you knew, knew Marcus, Marcus Garvey. Garvey? Marcus Garvey came to Trinidad sometime about 1928. He had already been sent away from the United States. And I was a reporter, and I went and interviewed him and followed him around where he spoke. He was a tremendous man. You probably are one of the few living people... I would guess, who knew Marcus Garvey personally. Yes, I knew Marcus Garvey. Maybe. I interviewed him somewhere about 1928. Perhaps this is worth dwelling on. The role of Marcus Garvey. Here's a man who's been ridiculed to a great extent, and yet he made people aware, did he not, this Western... I believe the intellectual origin of the black movement must rest with Dr. Du Bois a man with a range of scholarship, practical activity, and ambition for the development of humanity, which is not exceeded by anybody in the 20th century. But his chief concern was to appeal to and get in contact with intellectuals, historians, organizers, etc. When Du Bois was finished, Garvey began, so to speak, and Garvey made black emancipation something popular, which it had never been before. So both of them, although they may have had conflict, they filled yeah. political roles. Du Bois made it, an intellectual uh, discussion posed the question. Garvey made it a popular question. When Garvey was finished, everybody knew there was a black question. Both white people knew and black people all over the world knew. And that is what Garvey did, despite the mistakes that he made. That is to his great credit. And Garvey's name was known throughout the black world. In Africa, too, they knew of Marcus Garvey. And also throughout the white world. Garvey had made everybody, black and white, understand that the black man was sleeping no longer. He was on his way. That here, is his great contribution. Here again, a West Indian. And so we return to this moment that, with, with which your book begins. Uh, here was a colony profitable to the colonists, to the absentee landlords, the powers. 
uh, people being used, abused, yet surviving. Now, something happened in France. Now, in 1789 was a French Revolution. Therefore, it had a certain impact. How did word come to San Domingo? For one reason, people used to go up and down, but the French whites discussed the doctrines of the French Revolution with the utmost freedom. And there were white people from France who asked them, aren't you worried a bit that you should discuss these things before these black people? But they paid no attention to the blacks. They looked upon them as some sort of animal. A white woman used to undress before the black slaves as if they were a horse or a dog. They looked upon them as nothing. And they discussed these things very freely. And people from France asked them, but aren't you? Never talking, they didn't bother, but the blacks were listening. Ah, what is interesting about this, what makes Professor James' book so contemporary is the very point you just made. Often there is a woman working as a domestic in the home of a white mistress, you know, and she's talked about many, tell me this, friends of mine who worked as domestics, elderly women, who say that uh, they know everything about this person, and the person knows nothing about her because that, they talk in front of her as though she were furnished. That is a fact, that is a fact. That is a fact. You see, and a great deal of that is due to the fact that the black man is looked upon as a barbarous African but he has had to learn the language. That is very important. He has had to learn the European language. So today in the Caribbean, he speaks English, French, or Spanish. And he's equally a master of all of those, those so languages. he's learned these languages. He's learned far more, indeed, than the white master knew to survive. And so we come to many other aspects in your book, the nature of survival itself. Sometimes it's clowning. Sometimes it's pretending not to know in order to survive. And behavior different, uh, black people among blacks, different than, say, in front of the white. That is quite true. But the thing that I emphasize in regard to the Caribbean islands and regard to the San Domingo Revolution and the Cuban Revolution is this. The islands are rather small, judging on a world scale. The population is immensely concentrated. The type of industry where there is some is sugar or scraps of modern industry which d develop a highly civilized population. And in, for example, Trinidad, the island I come from, Barbados and Jamaica, we have the extraordinary advantage of having newspapers, papers, television, radio, etc., from Britain, from the United States, and from Canada. The opportunity of being in touch with the advanced centers of civilization is very so great. So then the people were au courant with all aspects the of life. The people are aware. They just have to pay two or three dollars a month, and they get a radio, and they hear everything that's going on. Now, going back to this time, something was happening then at this moment in France, the revolution. Two years later, something broke out in San Domingo, and we soon we learn of a man named Toussaint Louverture. But before that, now, was there an attempt by the colonists to split the people? After all, there were mulattoes, there were Creoles, and there were the blacks. Yes, the San Domingo Revolution began, the Black Revolution, because of the fierce struggle that was carried on between the San Domingo whites and the mulattoes who owned property, and some of them were educated. And after seeing the ferocity of that violence, the blacks themselves entered. 
they entered as a result of the conflict between San Domingo whites and San Domingo mulattoes. In the same way as the masses of France intervened because of the conflict between the nobles, the aristocracy, and the bourgeoisie, this went on and then the masses came in. The same thing happened in San Domingo. So a parallel was working both parallel ways. Was working. As a parallel. matter of fact, I'm very much struck by the tremendous parallels between the development in San Domingo and the developments in France. Much of my book pays careful attention to that, and I believe there are more parallels to be found later as we study both the French Revolution and the San Domingo Revolution. So there was a question of paradox involved, a question of contradiction involved. You point out the French Revolution was, in a sense, bourgeois. Uh, taking over, knocking off the... At the same time, slave trade yes. was part of their yes. life. The, the money that the bourgeoisie got that made them what they were, and as Jaurès says, gave them the feeling for liberty, that came from the slave trade. It's a very sharp contradiction. Now, the second paradox that I'm concerned with is that this sugar plantation was a very severe and demanding mode of labor but it also concentrated the, the blacks and gave them some element of social civilization, some feeling of unity, and enabled them to learn fundamentally many aspects of Western civilization. So, so that this sugar plantation was at the same time the most degrading and at the same time a very civilizing effort on the part of the black people. Again, paradox. The degrading nature of the work, the exploitation, at the same time, communication, communication. because of the constant contact. A con constant contact and also the sugar plantation produced sugar and the food that they ate came from abroad the sugar was sent abroad and so forth so that they had education not only in what was going on around them and the close relation with their masters but the sugar plantation was intimately connected with foreign developments and finance and so forth and all that the slaves learned so the window now was being opened the window awareness was occurring and once that happens people can no longer be the same. They, and the moment the French Revolution began, because what is important about the San Domingo Revolution, which has made it the most successful, the only successful slave revolt in history, is the fact that they were slaves. They had these elements of civilization in them, but they were able to use the doctrines and ideas of the French Revolution and apply them, these ideas, to their own situation. So they had not only a physical basis, contact with society, but they had a new ideology. That's what they were, the liberty, equality, fraternity, all that meant to them, the republic, uh, and so on. So again, perhaps the crowning paradox is the fact that it was the bourgeoisie that were factors in the French Revolution and also profiting the slave trade, but because of what they did, the window was now opened to the black slaves as well as the colored slaves. And they learned in, it. In they learned. They, oh, they took it over and made it something for themselves. And so the time was right then for a certain figure or group of figures. Yes, so uh, on the basis of that objective development and the spread of ideas, there emerges this remarkable man. It's difficult to say that the revolution made him, but he made the revolution, but the interplay between them is such that it's difficult to distinguish. And here we come to a man who's been a slave for 45 years, yes. Toussaint Louverture. Yes. And he comes at this moment, about 1791 or so. Yes. However, more important is the fact that the Abbe Reynal had written a famous book 
on the situation in the East and the West Indies. And he had said in that book, in a magnificent gesture, that the time was coming when some revolutionary person would relieve the slaves of the burdens from which they were suffering. And what is most fantastic, that book came into the hands of Toussaint Louverture. And he read repeatedly this passage in which the Abbe Reynal, I'm sure he was just a revolutionary intellectual, he just said, someday somebody would arise. And Toussaint kept on saying, someday somebody should arise. And he kept on thinking that someday somebody should arise. And the moment the revolt started in San Domingo, he said, this is, I am the person now. That is a very strange business. The reading of the words. Now, something was happening in France. You mentioned that Diderot, there were writings against slavery. That is before the revolution, yeah. the encyclopedia, yes. They're writing, but very often, I think you point this out in the case of Robespierre, that it was the word rather than the deed that was yes, being attacked. Because to abolish slavery meant a revolution. A tremendous revolution, not only in San Domingo, but in France. And they had reached 1793, and the days of May 1793, and they had reached this spring of 94 before they abolished slavery. So now the word had come. The man had come, and his colleagues, now the word. Worthy, and for 12 years now, the battle raised, the revolution, with pressures back and forth. Were the colonists, wholly now we come to the question of awareness or lack of awareness, were the absentee landlords of the colonists themselves? Now the colonists began by joining the revolution because the ancient monarchy had what is called the exclusive, and by that means they dominated the economy. So the colonists began by joining the revolution. But afterwards they saw that the revolution in France was assisting the black people and saying at any rate, if you are fighting for freedom, you should have it, etc. Whereupon the colonists, to a large majority, offered the colony to the British. That they offered it to the British. They were ready to, they were ready to get rid of King and all this loyalty. They told the, if slavery was not matter to them. And so they offered it to the British and the British came to get it. But they were defeated by Toussaint Louverture and the Black Army. So we have here again, we come back to your very opening two paragraphs you read in the prologue. The question of the coin. The, yes, question, the question of gold. Of the property. The question the wealth, of property. The production. The control of it. So I think what's bone deeply uh, powerful about uh, Dr. James' book, The Black Jacobins, is it deals with the reality of today, too. Though you deal with a time and almost 200 years ago, and you didn't say that there are, there's lip service very often offered, but until the reality face that may concern property itself, then a shift occurs in the case of the colonists. I was able to write this book because I was taking part in London and thereabouts with George Padmore, Jomo Kenyatta, and various others. I had been friendly. I got to know him, Kuma. And we were living this life. In other words, the French Revolution, the revolution of San Domingo, was to us a forecast of what would take place in Africa. So this book is closely the result of the kind of activity we were carrying on, both with the Marxist movement, with the black movement, and with the Labour Party and various others in Europe. The book is the result of a collab collaboration of a lot of people. So it really is a fusion of past and present. It's a so you wrote about the past, writing about present and future. And if you read the book carefully as you will, you will see that all through I am concerned with the effect of what I am writing on Africa. Yes. yes. You even have, if we come to another aspect, and this connects with the revolution itself, Toussaint Louverture, voodooism, the very fact that 
this had to be done secret too, because how could black people be Christians or to make themselves equal to the white, the colonists? They stuck to their voodooism because it formed a secret means of communication. But when the revolution actually took place, Toussaint and his officers were very severe against voodooism. They thought it was a backward being. But undoubtedly, I have no doubt as time goes on, that voodooism, not only before 1791, but afterwards, was a secret means of communication between the Haitians. Slaves in America, the spiritual had a double meaning. They were very close to Africa, you see, because many of the slaves who made the revolution had made the Middle Passage. So they had their voodooism. Well, they had. A question, because your book raises these questions, which makes it so fascinating work, too. The role of the French working people, masses now, at the time, the French Revolution and after, what effect this was having on the revolt elsewhere? We naturally think of today, America and uh, Vietnam, in a sense. No, I think this much. First of all, the French Revolution was the bourgeois revolution in that it resulted in the displacement of the feudal elements by the bourgeoisie, and the bourgeoisie took over. But the fact remains that the bourgeoisie will not have been able to carry that revolution to its success unless the masses of the French people, the sans-culottes, had done it for them. The sans-culottes didn't win money, but they were so hostile to the regime that they carried the bourgeois revolution to its complete end. And also in San Domingo, the revolt there meant that the black soldiers were able to defend that wealthy colony against the British, Spaniards and the rest of them so that they help one another. And in, at the high peak of the revolution in France, that was the time when the French revolutionary forces declared freedom for blacks everywhere. So the two of them were working together. Now, were there attempts, I think you point this out in the books too, there was a great ambivalence on the part of mulattoes to many, many cases. Yes, the mulattoes were an intermediate class. This has nothing to do with their color or their blood or the mixture of blood. It is that they were not closely allied with the rich whites but they were rich people and they were allied in a way with the blacks they were partially racial blacks so in between there they were a typical intermediate class and wobbled both sides now they would go with this one and the other and the ultimate victory in San Domingo was won when the mulattoes joined completely with the blacks to finish up with the French invasion now we come to several people in in Toussaint's life you mentioned Abbey Renal and a remarkable name, man named Santonax. Santonax was a Jacobin. He was a right-wing Jacobin. But there was something about him. He came out to, Fra- to San Domingo being sent by the government more than once. And although he made mistakes and things and so forth, he was a man completely devoted to the emancipation of the black people. And he taught them literacy. He taught them revolutionary songs. He taught them Latin and Greek stories and education, the doctrines of the revolution. And he told them, you have your guns. Keep them. If at any time anybody tells you to give up your guns, they mean to restore slavery. Santonax was a bit uncertain as to what was taking place in France, but in regard to San Domingo, um, 50 years after, black slaves still remembered him because he had devoted himself completely to black emancipation. But there was always this memory and this knowledge that there would be an attempt to restore slavery. He had that, and he warned them. Anybody tells you to give up your guns, that means the restoration of slavery. And so we come to a 
many documents you have here, writings of Tucson and others. Perhaps, uh, I remember you reading the first part, the prologue. I've underlined something here of your writings, Tucson's writings. Uh, the underlining, the question is, uh, are the colonists aware now that the black people will never, will never return to that Toussaint place? is writing to the French government and he's warning them that the colonists are plotting to restore slavery. And he's telling the French government, I'm somewhat uncertain as to what you intend to do. So he's telling them, well, I don't think you will. It is a very fine passage. Do they think that men who have been able to enjoy the blessing of liberty will calmly see it snatched away? They supported their chains only so long as they did not know any condition of life more happy than that of slavery. But today, when they have left it, if they had a thousand lives, they would sacrifice them all rather than then be forced into slavery again. And then he speaks here to the French government, but no, the same hand which has broken our chains will not enslave us anew. France will not revoke her principles. She will not withdraw from us the greatest of her benefits. He's telling the French government, you wouldn't do it, but I'm telling you not to do it. She will protect us against all our enemies. She will not permit her sublime morality to be perverted. Those principles which do her most honor to be destroyed, her most beautiful achievement to be degraded. But if to reestablish slavery in San Domingo, this was done, then I declare to you it would be to attempt the impossible. We have known how to face dangers to obtain our liberty. We shall know how to brave death to maintain it. And then he ends up magnificently. This, citizens, directors, is the morale of the people of San Domingo. These are the principles that they transmit to you by me. Orphrey was beautiful. The eloquence. Oh, yes. And yet wasn't this the one flaw in Toussaint, his faith in France? Coming to Toussaint Louverture's, possibly his one flaw, Dr. C.L.R. James, Professor James, our guest scholar, particularly on black African West Indian history, a reading talking about his book, it's a classic, called The Black Jacobins, dealing with Toussaint Louverture Revolt, beginning in 1791 in San Domingo. And he was just reading one of the letters Toussaint wrote to France. In a moment, we return to the theme and to Professor James. We return to Professor James, his book, The Black Jacobins. He's just been reading a letter that Toussaint Louverture wrote to the French government. And we continue. A flaw. I admit that it was a flaw, but to see it only as a flaw is a mistake because that enabled him to lay the foundation in San Domingo that Dossaline and these others were able to use. That he, he had a limit, but it was this limitation that enabled him to establish something which the others could use. I, I, I withdraw that word flaw because this again is part of the power of your book, the nature of paradox, the nature of limitation, the nature of human possibility. I would like, this was Tucson. I would like to tell you something. For a hundred years and more, Toussaint was somewhat uh, ignored in the history of San Domingo. People looked upon Toussaint as having made mistakes, and Dessalines as the man who carried the revolution to success, which undoubtedly he did. My book was translated into French. It went to Haiti. And I have been told by many Haitians that today in Haiti there is a new conception of the role of Toussaint in the revolution due to the, the, what my book has said. So because even though, as you say, uh, he was tied, 
France very much. Yes. This is the nature of him. This enabled one of his colleagues, Dessalines, to go to, further. To go further, but enabled Toussaint to lay the foundation and to establish certain principles. The real mischief maker in that business was Bonaparte. Ah, so now we come to Bonaparte misusing... Miss, uh, Miss Bonaparte, who sent this tremendous expedition, perhaps the greatest expedition that had ever left Europe to conquer the Haitians, the, the blacks in San Domingo, and they failed. You know, it's incredible. Again, the book and its 1969-70 counterparts. The greatest expedition to conquer an island, we think naturally of ourselves in Vietnam at the moment, but here it was Leclerc, led this incredible... Something happened to him, this French general, in his letters, his agony, yes. something he thought was easy, was a cinch. Yes, no. And then something happened to him. To and him. in the end, he says, we in France have a false idea of the country in which we fight and the kind of men we fight against. That was run out of him at the end. He realized that the blacks of San Domingo were not people whom you could just drive into slavery. He says, we don't understand these people. I remember many passages of his letters, but I remember this passage in particular. It is not enough to have taken away Toussaint. There are 2,000 leaders in San Domingo to be taken away. And right there, even though Toussaint was betrayed, he returned to France, he was imprisoned and died in prison. He said so, yeah, that, uh, it, there were still others. Yes, he said, you have, in getting rid of me... You have taken away only the trunk of the tree, but its roots are deep, and slavery will never be restored in San Domingo. That must be remembered. Toussaint could take the chances that he did and tie himself to French civilization because he was absolutely certain that the slavery could never be restored. And so it was 12 years or so. Yes. The French lost thousands, of they course, lost the blacks. lost 60,000 men, and more than that, the historian of the British Army says that the British Army was destroyed in the Caribbean. Totally destroyed. He says that is why when the war began in 93, they made little attempt or could do little in regard to France, in regard to the army, in, re in regard to military invasion of France. The reason was because they were attempting to capture the West Indian territories of France and the black armies destroyed the British army completely. Fortescue, the historian of the British army, says that 1798 is the most disgraceful year in the history of the British army. Because those blacks in the San Domingo did what they did. You know, your book has never-ending possibilities because it occurs to me, the black Jacobins, and of course the phrase used with the French Revolutionary Party, the Jacobin Party, but also the role that the Toussaint Louverture Revolution played in the American Civil War. Now, not only that, I would prefer to say this. It is in regard to the independence of the Latin American countries because they saw America independent. Good, they accepted that. But then they saw these black slaves not only win the independence, but keep it. Whereupon a lot of them in Latin America began to say, well, if they could win the independence and keep it, it isn't only America and a big country like So we can. And Pétion was beaten from Latin America was welcomed in Haiti, he was given food, he was made uh, better, doctors attended him, and then they gave him men. This was a Latin American. Latin America, they gave him men, they gave him uh, arms, they gave him money, they gave him a printing press, and it is from there he went back to Latin America to win the independence of the five states. 
so they took a tremendous part in the development of Latin America. Of Latin America, and then of course here we come to the United States. Because uh, the, the people, the people in the United States refused to recognize Haiti until after 1865, because the southern slave owners were always looking upon that as somewhere where they could expand the territorial uh, development of cotton number one and number two. San Domingo and Haiti had given an example to the French, to the blacks in, in the United States, which they knew very well, and which the southern plantation owners were mightily afraid of. That was a tremendous role. You know, again, the contemporary aspects of your book, toward the latter part of it, the War of Independence, the last chapter, you speak of the pride of, in three years, people ask, how could this happen in three years? This, any part of your own, your own writing there. I'm yes. About the if in 1788 anyone had told the Comte de Lausanne, the minister, the Comte de Pénier, the governor, General Rochambeau, the soldier, Moreau de Saint-Méry, the historian, Barbé de Marbois, the bureaucrat, that the thousands of dumb brutes who were whipped to labor at dawn and whipped back at midnight, who submitted to their mutilations, burnings, and other savageries, some of whom would not even move unless they were whipped, if these fine gentlemen had been told that in three years the blacks would shake off their chains and face extermination rather than put them on again, they would have thought the speaker mad. While if today one were to suggest to any white colonial potentate that among those blacks whom they rule are men so infinitely their superior in ability, energy, range of vision, and tenacity of purpose that in a hundred years' time these whites would be remembered only because of their contact with the blacks, one would get some idea of what the counts, marquises, and other colonial magnates of the day thought of Jean-Francois, Toussaint, and Rigaud when the revolt first began. Thus again, we come to the question of awareness and the lack of awareness on the other side of what yes. is happening, of what is about to happen. Yes, the book again has this prophetic quality. It's 1938, first written. And, and many of these things are, are written in 1938. I didn't write them in. I made one or two changes but, and introduced one or two new points. But essentially, 98% of the book is as it was. Now, I would like, if you don't mind, to read this. This is one of my favorite passages in the, in the book. Yes. And you must remember that this was written in 1938. He had sent millions of francs to America to wait for the day when he would be ready to invade Africa, put an end to the slave trade, and make millions of blacks free and French, as the French Revolution had made the blacks of San Domingo. The great revolution had propelled him out of his humble joys and obscure destiny, and the trumpets of its heroic period rang ever in his ears. In him, born a slave and the leader of slaves, the concrete realization of liberty, equality, and fraternity was the womb of ideas and the springs of power which overflowed their narrow environment and embraced the whole of the world. 
but for the revolution, this extraordinary man and his band of gifted associates would have lived their lives as slaves, serving the commonplace creatures who owned them, standing barefooted and in rags to watch inflated little governors and mediocre officials from Europe pass by as many a talented African stands in Africa today. I wrote that in 1938, and today I'm very proud of it, because I knew what was taking place. They were standing there in rugs and having to wave when these fellows passed, and they only needed a few years for them to be driving past in charge, whatever they did, and these fellows became nothing. It is amazing, your passage, that as well as your book, uh, Professor James, the fact that you describe this, and toward the end of it, you... You speak of a, a letter from a Rhodesian black yes. that speaks of this particular aspect of it. You're writing, of course, the style, uh, the power, but also the truth, that in this one man, then you saw the development of a people, too. Yes. And you spoke of uh, the West Indians earlier, earlier, and, of course, the great poet, Amy Césaire, whom, whom you know. Yes, I know Césaire, and the man I admire very much. And in the course of this appendix, in which I deal with the history of the West Indies from to Saint Louverture, to Fidel Castro, I refer to Césaire's great poem, Cahier d'un retour au pays natal, statement of a return to the country where I was born. And I've translated some of it, because it is in this poem that is first stated the poetic conception of negritude. He says, my negritude is not a stone, its deafness a sounding board for the noises of the day. My negritude is not a mere spot of dead water on the dead eye of the earth. My negritude is no tower, no cathedral. It cleaves into the red flesh of the teeming earth. It cleaves into the glowing flesh of the heavens. It penetrates the seamless bondage of my unbending patience. And then he makes a tremendous statement on behalf of African civilization. Hurrah for those who never invented anything, for those who never explored anything, for those who never mastered anything, but who possessed, give themselves up to the essence of each thing, ignorant of the coverings, but possessed by the pulse of things, indifferent to mastering, but taking the chances of the world. And then he launches an attack on white civilization in 1938, the same year I wrote this book. And today, with all these missiles about, he says, listen to the white world. It's horrible exhaustion from its immense labors. It's rebellious joints cracking under the pitiless stars. It's blue steel rigidities cutting through the mysteries of the flesh. Listen to their vain glorious conquests, trumpeting their defeats. Listen to the grandiose alibis of their pitiful floundering. But he says, I must not have be hate. I must not have hate. He says, for it is not true that the work of man is finished that man has nothing more to do in the world but be a parasite in the world, that all we now need is to keep in step with the world. But the work of man is only just beginning, and it remains to man to conquer all the violence entrenched in the recesses of his passion. And no race possesses the monopoly of beauty, of intelligence, of force, and there is a place for all at the rendezvous of victory. It is a magnificent poem. Oh, yes. This is the finest poem ever written on Africa. You know, as... as uh, He's a West Indian, too, I want to say. <laughs> yes. Professor C.L.R. James, as you just read these excerpts from 
the Cesar poem, I couldn't help but think of the power, the humanity of it, and of course of your book and your scholarship. Uh, the book, by the way, for uh, listeners who will be inquiring, it's vintage. It's a paperback vintage. It's, it's definitely available. It's a classic, and it, uh, it should be read, it seems to me, by anyone who wants to know about the open window and what is going on in the world and what will continue. And perhaps just one as sort of a postscript, your own courses, the way you teach, man, all literature uses your base in speaking of liberation. And it's using in one of your courses, Origin of Western Civilization, uh, from the Bible of the Hebrews, Revolt of Colonial People, Exodus, Revolt of Women Against Second Class Citizenship, Esther. And you go on to speak of Greek, use Greek uh, classics. Yes. And you go on. I use the Greek classics because the basis of Western civilization is the work of the Hebrews and of the Greeks. Everybody understands that. So in studying the race and the radicalism of race, I take examples of the radicalism of the Hebrews and the radicalism of the Greeks. I am happy to do the story of Moses because he was the first that we know of who led a suppressed people to freedom. So if you're talking about freedom and the release of a suppressed people, I begin with Moses. That is what we are rooted in, particularly in the United States and in the Caribbean. We are rooted in Western civilization. So we cannot ignore African civilization. We do the best we can to be in contact with it. What series of talks, I deal with Mau I deal with uh, Nkrumah, etc., the emergence of Africa, but I say we have to be aware of where we have come from. We cannot uh, deny the roots of Western civilization and the radicalism that we find in it, we absorb and take it to ourselves. So that I think we have a lot to learn because we both Western and African civilization, we of the black people in the Caribbean and in the United States, we touch civilization at two points. And in all my work, I try to be aware yes, of them. Indeed, as you also what Dr. Du Bois said, and soul of Dr. Du Bois, Dr. Du Bois is one of yeah. the greatest men of the 20th century. I have been very hostile to people who talk about Dr. Du Bois as one of the great black leaders, and even black people say, well, he was one of our best. I say, by you do that, by you doing, doing that, you denigrate him. He was one of the most distinguished citizens of the 20th century, black, white, yellow, or anything. A remarkable man. Yes. So in Dr. James, we have the scholar, at the same time, not the academician, not the removed, detached, very much the advocate scholar. Yes, I'm the advocate, and wherever possible, I participate in the struggles of the people. I know, and my course is aimed at proving that without the conscious intervention, or even the unconscious intervention of the mass of the people, there can be no real progress towards liberation. The intellectual may express and make clear what is really taking place in the majority of the people. That is what my course is seeking to put, and that is what my book, The Black Jacobins, expresses both for France and for the colonies. And just as there are two cultures, just as you find the fusion of the two and the contribution of the black man to both, tremendous, so you all see knowledge, you all see activity from the scholar, but from the street as well, the book and the street, you see yeah, it going both, both ways. Together, and one expresses the other, and the, the work of the book is of no serious value unless it is supplemented and stimulated by the work of the street. That is the view I have. The Black Jacobins is the book, and it's my privilege indeed to have been here with Professor C.L.R. James, now visiting professor at Northwestern University. It's vintage. And thank you very much indeed. Much obliged to you, sir. Much obliged to you. This particular conversation took place on uh, during Dr. James' last day. 
in America. He's returning to his home in London. He'll be returning to America soon to lecture at Princeton, at, at Yale, and at uh, Columbia. We trust at Northwestern again, where he'd like to talk about the various literatures of history and liberation, Old Testament, New Testament, the Greeks. Uh, that was part of a series, too, at Northwestern. So we trust in the not-too-distant future once more. Dr. James will be our guest. The book is The Black Jacobins, paperback, vintage, the publishers. We thought perhaps some music that might be appropriate now in the time remaining. There are songs, slave songs and code songs sung in the islands, San Domingo then, and no doubt many of them found their way in, in America itself, in the States, in the pre-Civil War days. A voodoo American is such a song. It is code as uh, black spirituals are code. It's a funeral song, Bia Baluco, at the same time it speaks of freedom. And though it speaks of that body of water, when the burden of life becomes too much for he, for the man who has died, uh, there's a deep body of water separating him from freedom. So, as we say, this could be the River Jordan. It also could be that uh, river separating slave from free state or slave state from Canada. And these are songs that are commonly found today on the Sea Islands off the coast of Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. It could be traced there, but I imagine could go back to uh, the Caribbeans as well. This one, Voodoo American. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, rare archival interview uh, with uh, C.L.I. James discussing uh, his book, uh, The Black Jacobins, uh, which uh, has been reprinted on numerous occasions in many different languages. That's going to conclude uh, the Patent African Journal special worldwide uh, radio broadcast for this Sunday, February the 11th, uh, 2024. We've been broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of uh, legendary jazz guitarist, uh, Detroit's own Kenny Burrell. This is from a 1963 album entitled Freedom. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. <laughs>
Thank you. 